0: Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. My name is Anders Johnson. I'm the head of the Innovative Policies Development Section at the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, and I'll be the host of this first edition of the new podcast series, Innovation Matters. Our topic for today is the platform economy. Using the potential of platforms to turn products into services more systematically across the economy and society opens up a range of opportunities that can drive sustainable development over the next decades. As our guests will argue in this edition, the platform economy is potentially one of the most important transformations of our era, and and one which has arguably only gotten started. To help us understand what the platform economy is and why it is so transformational, we are honored to welcome one of the most distinguished experts in the area of the platform economy, Professor Mike Munger. Mike is a professor of political science, economics and public policy at Duke University and he also directs the Duke University Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program. He has several books, over 200 publications, and in particular, in his book Tomorrow 3.0, he has looked at the platform economy from a political economy perspective, exploring its promises and perils. Mike, welcome to Innovation Matters. And to start us off, uh, tell us what the platform economy is and why it is so transformational. I, being an economist am not very good at predicting the future.
1: My specialty is pre- predicting the past, and the immediate past is where I'm really the best. So when I look back through economic history, I'm, I'm a student of Douglas North, and Douglas North was an economic historian, won the Nobel Prize in 1993, and one of the things that he focused on was the history of the attempts to control and reduce transactions cost. And in fact, North's definition of a market was a set of institutions that are designed to reduce transactions cost. Now, I want to define transactions cost as having three parts. Triangulation, you have to be able to find each other. Transfer, you have to be able to deliver the goods or services and collect the payment. And trust, that I actually have to rely on the fact that uh you will not rob me that the good or service that you're delivering is useful that the money you're paying me with is not counterfeit those three problems are very old what's new is what i and many others now are calling platforms which are a particular setting it doesn't have to be a physical setting but it's a particular setting either virtual or physical or some a, a salient kind of focal point that people can locate they know where to go in order to solve those three problems in a particular way. And that is the thing that's really new, the growing importance of what are called two-sided markets. So traditionally, we have thought of capitalism as being large firms that hire labor and manufacture things that consumers will buy. But as we have found, that model, which produced in many ways a lot of wealth, has also produced a lot of damage to the environment. It has produced inequality in the access to the fruits, the the wealth, and the the all, all the commodities that consumers have access to. Two-sided markets are a way of sharing, are a way of because we have enough stuff. We have enough stuff. All we have to do is make better use of it and everyone will get access to it. So a two-sided market is one where someone who has something that they're not using to its full capacity shares it with someone else who could not afford to buy the thing itself or to store the thing itself, but who is eager to use it. And so it's a problem of commodification. One example that I often use is my car. I Am ashamed to admit, I have a BMW 330 and it sits most of the time in my garage. And if not, it's sitting at a parking space in my office at Duke. At my office at Duke, well, that's a really expensive thing, not just in terms of the cost of the car itself, but also in storage costs. So cities have a lot of spaces that could be used for humans that instead we use to store empty cars. So the commodification of excess capacity in two-sided markets to solve the problems of triangulation transfer and trust is
0: the direction that the platform economy can take us in. Thank you, Mike, for that introduction. Indeed, it's very important to think about how we can use all of the excess capacity that is out there for sustainable development, to make consumption more affordable and to make production more sustainable. But to make this a little bit more concrete and to avoid getting too technical, could you give us a few examples of what is happening now or what might be happening in the future? And concretely, how those examples resolve the problems of triangulation, transfer and trust uh, that you talk about? Well, in a way,
1: Platforms are very old. 5,000 years ago at the souk in uh, the Middle East, so a variety of marketplaces in the Middle East, the marketplace didn't make stuff, what they did was have people who wanted to sell grain pieces of wood or furniture that was made out of reeds. Everybody knew that you could buy those things and the consumers would also go there. So the Souk, later the mall, the Sears catalog, which was a the first virtual platform because it was pieces of paper. Sears did not sell stuff. Sears sold access to the products that were in a two-sided market. So I, a seller, would put my ad in the Sears catalog. You, a buyer, would look through the catalog. And Sears would handle the problem of delivery and payment. So Sears was a platform. They didn't sell stuff. They sold reductions in transactions cost. So the question is, how is that going to change? And Amazon, obviously, is a platform. But it's a virtual platform. It's not a physical catalog. It's not a mall. It's a virtual mall. But the, I, what I want to emphasize is these things are of a piece. So what I've tried to do, and I've already warned you, I'm not good at this. What I've tried to do is predict not the past, but the future. So imagine that, uh, well, I you see some, some pictures behind me. My wife is a fan of being able to hang pictures in our house. Suppose that I want to hang a new picture, and to do that, I have to drill a hole in the wall. Well, right now, I own three power drills, and these power drills are of different types, and they're all in the garage, and I can probably find them. Why am I storing those things? Well, the answer is transaction costs. It is easier for me to own and to store those things than it would be to rent them. But platforms can make it possible to rent, to share actually, to share things in ways that until now have just seemed fanciful. So my wife says, all right, we're going to hang pictures today. And I get out my phone and I go to Uber Because Uber actually is the competitor for Amazon. Uber will be the new virtual mall because they can deliver things for rental. We think of Uber as being a competitor of taxi companies. It's not. Uber is a competitor of Amazon because it can deliver things for our use. So I go to Uber, I go to Power Tools, I go to Drills, and I say I want to get it delivered. And a few minutes later... My phone buzzes because the smart pod in front of my house knows, because it's smart, that the power drill has been delivered by an autonomous Uber car. I go out and I get the drill, and it's a better quality commercial drill than I could possibly afford for myself because I'm only renting it. I put the two holes in the wall, and my wife says, no, I don't want it there. And I go, Ging! Okay, so I drill two different holes in a different spot, knowing that later I will have to patch the first two holes that I made, but it doesn't take very long. And then I put the drill back in the smart pod, and the smart pod communicates with an autonomous Uber driver who then picks up the drill and takes it on to its next use now notice that the density of transactions of this drill mean that we have commodified the excess capacity that until now has hindered our ability to share this drill this high quality drill is available for the use of 10 or 12 different people in a single day it's much higher quality and it's it's the it's a commercial quality drill it means that right now in the united states there's a hundred million power drills we probably need six or seven million high quality power drills. So my vision of this is that it's going to transform the number and quality of commodities to make them shareable and usable. Now you can say that that example is going a bit too far. That's a drill joke because drills have bits. It's going a bit too far because in the current setting, we don't think about being able to rent things that way. But We do rent cars that way. There's a number of things where transactions costs have been brought down by computers and software. So I think very quickly, we're going to stop owning things. We're not going to need parking spaces in cities. We're not going to need large closets and houses. We're going to be able to share things because there's already enough stuff. All we need to do is make it possible for more people to get access to it. And the nice thing is that this will both increase all of our wealth. It will give us more space and it will dramatically reduce our environmental footprint. We can do
0: all of those things. Thank you, Mike. Indeed. As you say, and as as we explored before, the potential of using all of the excess capacity that is out there, such as cars, houses, tools, but also human skills and human potential is enormous. We might be talking about as much as 90% of assets could be turned into services and made more affordable by this kind of intermediation. This is particularly promising for us because we have the mandate to move towards an increasingly circular economy, which means using resources sustainably or ideally in a circular manner. And we have to square this with the ambition for economic growth and especially to bring people out of poverty, which would inevitably lead to more consumption. And by using excess capacity better, we could resolve this dilemma. And it seems like the platform economy would be essential in this regard and also making things affordable. Another thing that comes to mind is the importance of exploring what Mark Andreessen is in his book, The Long Tail, calls the long tail, the long range of different, different needs and potential interactions that could take place if they could just be intermediated better. Another thing that's important is that this will create opportunities for entrepreneurship and jobs. We don't know which ones exactly yet, especially on the production side, but we know that there will be many. So, but the question is, how do we get there? Why is there still for many of us no convenient way for me, for example, to to drive to work in the morning, although behind me and ahead of me, there might be someone going in exactly the same direction with lots of space in his or her car. Why is this still not easy? Why do we still own tools and own cars and own much more products than we actually need at any given time? It seems to be only scratched the surface here. So tell us a little bit about how we get from where we are now to the future.
1: That's a really long question. My, my answer could easily take an hour. Um, I'll try to speak briefly in, in just five minutes. I think it's interesting that we have so far not made that much progress in solving the problem of commodifying excess capacity for rides. Now, notice that Uber, if I call an Uber, that driver then goes to a place he or she would not otherwise go. So that's not, re- that's not really ride-sharing. What that is, is the person has a car in a few minutes, and I need a ride, and so there's a mutually beneficial transaction. But those who live in Central Europe do have an experience with a true ride-sharing app, which is called Blah, Blah Car. And I often try to explain this to American audiences, because I don't know why it doesn't exist in the United States, but Blah, Blah car is an app that uses the software to provide three pieces of information. First, where are you now? Second, where do you want to go? three at what time and then there's actually a fourth how much do you want to talk blah means i don't really like people very much blah blah means according to the software enjoys a natter and blah 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 means rarely pauses even for breath just speaks constantly so if i'm in brno and i'm going to go to prague in the morning i contact blah blah car and there's a trucker who is going to have an empty front right seat and I meet the trucker, or maybe the trucker even picks me up if, if the, he or she is going someplace that was close to where I was thinking, and then drops me off in Prague, not at the airport, but at near the center city. And whereas a train would cost 100 euros, blah blah car may cost 12 euros. It's much cheaper. So blah, blah, blah car has shown that it is possible. And that's just hitchhiking. In the United States, we used to call that hitchhiking. That is true ride sharing. There is an example in the United States of something that's like that. One of the things that we've tried to do to get people to share is to have high occupancy vehicle lanes. So there is one lane where if you have two or three people that are in the car, uh, you get to go, otherwise, the police will stop you or a camera will show that you don't have the other people in the car. Well, in Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, there is a piece of software called Slugline. And so you pull over. And there, it's known that there are different spots. If I wanted to go to downtown DC, there's a place in Virginia where we all meet. If I want to go to the CIA, if I want to go to the Pentagon, there's another place where we all go to meet. People line up and the cars pull up. They get Two passengers, and then they go to that destination, which they're going to go to anyway, and no money changes hand. Because it's a mutually beneficial transaction, the driver is now able to use the high-occupancy vehicle lane, and the two riders both get a free ride to their work destination. This is so reliable that people actually routinely use it. That is, I know that at 7.15, I can get a ride within five minutes, and so I can actually get to work that way. So we are making progress. Your question is, why have we not made more progress? But that may be because you're kind of a glass-half-empty guy. I'm a glass-half-full guy, and so I've seen that we made enormous progress. The big problem that we have is, honestly, old people. Young people are used to using apps, They're used to using things like blah, blah, car. When you think about it, if you use Airbnb, you're saying that you're going to stay in someone else's apartment and they have the key in a city you've never been to before. That's creepy as heck. Young people do it without another thought. And the reason that they do it is they know that reputations, the problem of trust, can be solved by reputation and reviews. And Airbnb has has already collected a large body of reviews. It's not a perfect solution. But if I stay at a place and another 50 people have all said, yeah, the host was great, not creepy, this felt terrific, then we can solve the problem of trust decentralized way without regulation. The the, the state is operating in the background. And of course, being, finding ways where every, universal broadband, universal access to something like cell phones, being able to put this in the hands of more people, there is a role for the state. But allowing it to be solved in a decentralized way by reputation and reviews mean that I think in another five years or so, as old people like me start to retire and go around with walkers and young people start more and more to use apps, it, we're not far from being able to
0: share power tools. Thank you, Mike. Indeed, I don't know if I am a, a pessimist, but to the extent that I am, I'd like to cite the famous uh, uh, founder of, of, of behavioral economics, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who said I'm a pessimist for the simple reason that I keep getting positively surprised. And indeed, if we look back towards history, it takes a long time for technology to really filter through. Just to have electricity and phones in every home took over half a century, even in the developed world. And much of it has actually been fundamentally human about building new habits and institutions that take advantage of technology. So it's clear that we don't know exactly what's going to happen and and how it's going to play out. But it's probably also clear that 20 years down the line, we're going to look back and wonder how inefficient our societies were at this particular moment. I'd like to ask a few questions referring again to your book. You talk quite a bit about the difference between owning and renting and the perception of ownership and how this might change driven by the changes brought about by the emerging platform economy. If you could please talk a little bit about that and also maybe specifically about the challenges that developing and emerging countries in the ECE region might face. How can they avoid falling behind and create opportunities, also on the production side, in addition to the opportunities that obviously will come on the consumption side, especially in light of widespread concerns and also shrinking fiscal space during COVID recovery. If you could talk a bit about that. Gosh, these are such, these are
1: big, hard questions, um, but I, I, I will do my best. So. Ronald Coase famously asked the question, if markets are so great, why are there firms? And the answer to that question was transactions costs, that firms are a way of reducing the costs of having contracts and employees and being able to produce things. If Ronald Coase were alive today, he might ask the question, why is it that we own things instead of rent? Because when you think of it, owning is very wasteful. Owning means that I pay for everything twice. First I have to buy the thing and then I have to pay to store it. And developing nations spend an awful lot on not just storing things but putting locks and trying to protect the things that they own because state capacity, the police, the courts cannot necessarily be relied on to enforce property rights costlessly. Now, it seems then like rental, particularly for developing nations or sharing of of another kind, is pie in the sky. That it would be very difficult in places without state capacity to solve this problem. But in fact, in Somalia and a number of places that are the developing nations that have extremely limited state capacity, we're seeing a kind of change, which in my book I labeled saltation. So normally a development economist has a list of things that you have to accomplish. You have to have a police force, you have to have an independent judiciary, you have to have a financial system. Not surprisingly, we would like to try to find a shortcut. Well, software and blockchain applications that allow us to write smart contracts may be a way of achieving the kind of change that I have called saltation, which is a kind of leapfrogging, which is we can we can skip the intervening steps. And so in some ways, I, I don't need Bitcoin. I don't need smart contracts because I have the U.S. dollar and I have the, the entire U.S. infrastructure of the economy working for me. But if I'm in a developing nation Having a reliable currency and having a a way to have contracts that will enforce themselves using blockchain technology without requiring cooperation of the corrupt police force or slow court system means that I can leapfrog several steps in terms of economic and political development. So what I don't know is how the state and how international organizations like the UN can best facilitate that. But I do know that asking the right question is the first step. So the important thing is to recognize we need to try to change the way we think about development from the usual list of here's the institutions that until now you have had to have to say, here's a way that you can use saltation, leapfrogging over all of the intervening stages of development and achieving development on a much faster
0: human timescale. Thank you, Mike. Indeed, for us, the idea of saltation, or some people also talk about quantum leaps, I know it's a slightly different concept, uh, is very important. Changing institutions from the bottom up, in fact, turning the institutions into something akin to institutions of Denmark and Switzerland, is a process of history and take a long, take a long time. And one of the things that do not do well is to not resort to long laundry lists of institutions that need to be done. We need to think about shortcuts and we need to think about the history of institutions and how they can gradually transform. But if you look around the ECE transition economies, there is actually surprising momentum in innovation based on the platform economy here and there. The problem is it's not spreading quickly enough to the rest of the economy. So in the long run, we're optimistic, but in the short run, there's quite a bit of work to be done. Another thing you talk about is the importance of consumer surplus. You note that most of the value that we will get from the platform economy is not in GDP itself, but in the advantages that accrue to consumers and that we don't actually measure in GDP. And this consumer surplus can actually be quite substantial if, for instance, you ask people how much in the U.S. how much they would pay for not having internet during a month, they might talk about several thousand dollars. And this is, of course, utility that is not measured. And Tyler Cowen talks about the world where people have cell phones rather than factories, where more, most of the activity will be on the consumption side. What do you think a world like this will, will look like and what the implications will be?
1: What well, it is, starting with the last part first, it is funny that we call them cell phones, because as far as I can tell, no one under 30 has ever used them to make a call. They, they text each other, they watch videos, but it's not a phone as far as they're concerned. It's a small portable communication device that is connected to a network of networks called the internet, and it runs little pieces of permissionless innovation called apps. So those three things, this personal communication device that's connected to the internet, that runs apps, those three things together mean that we all will have access in ways that have not been true until now. So the question that, forgive me, I've forgotten the first part of your question. I was so excited about Tyler Cowen.
0: Uh, The other question was about the consumer surplus. You mentioned the neglected importance and the value that you will not see if you just look at uh, GDP figures.
1: Ah, So consumer surplus is the difference between what I have to pay for something and what I actually have to pay for something. And the idea in computing GDP was that what we want to look at is the aggregate level of economic activity. And we had an anachronistic sense that sales were what was economic activity. But there's an awful lot of things now on the internet that are effectively free. And my favorite example is Wikipedia. So Wikipedia, in a way, is not really a market transaction at all, but it is a platform. So if I want to find something on Wikipedia, it has a search function. So that's triangulation. If I want to write to add a new section in Wikipedia, or if I want to edit something that's already there, I get credit for it because I metadata on Wikipedia show who has contributed this, and people on Wikipedia credit people who write those entries, you actually get a lot of value from creating value for someone else just because human beings are cooperative creatures. But we need a setting in which you get credit for that. People who write on Wikipedia, they don't get paid. But Wikipedia is is an enormous, emergent human achievement. But suppose that we can't trust what's on Wikipedia. So I go and I will edit Lars Jonsson's uh, entry, and I'm sure it's a, a long entry on Wikipedia, and I say all sorts of horrible things about what Lars has done. Well, whoever is in charge of that page looks at it the next morning and says, well, no, I don't accept these edits. And they press one button and it reverts to the previous form which means that it also solves the problem of trust. I can spend hours and hours writing slanders on your Wikipedia page, and with one touch of a button, it reverts. So Wikipedia is a platform that solves the problem of triangulation, transfer, and trust. Now, how much is Wikipedia worth? Well, it doesn't enter into GDP because its price is zero. But how much would you pay for access to Wikipedia? I would pay, I know, thousands of dollars a year. And if we multiply that by all the people who use Wikipedia, Wikipedia is creating trillions of dollars of value. And it's doing it in a way that's not in a traditional market setting. So unleashing people from this market idea that I only do something if I get paid for it and giving people reasons to create value. Measuring the surplus, the consumer surplus that's created, means that right now we're dramatically underestimating the value of the new sharing economy. Sharing by its nature is going to be hard to measure because it's dramatically cheaper. That's the benefit. So the the value proposition is that all of it get more access to more stuff and more information that's extremely valuable at a lower price. If we use GDP to measure this, we'll miss it.
0: Thank you, Mike. So the consumer surplus is perhaps by far the largest opportunity that we have here. But let's look about the production side, opportunities for employment and and entrepreneurship. Here there's uh, there's quite a bit of concern about issues such as rising inequality, both among classes but also among countries, uh, skills gap, benefits that might accrue to, to a few, the rising wage premium. Uh, and if you look at simple data like IP registrations across country, it's very clear that they tend to accrue to a couple of developed countries because it simply doesn't make sense to accrue them in other situations. I know that we inevitably fail to predict the future, and we have in the past and we will in the future. But talk a little bit about the concerns around the future of jobs and also maybe about the potential social policy response that we could put in place to protect the vulnerable, but also build the skills to make the most of human potential in the context of the platform economy.
1: The main one that worries me is giving people access to the resources that they will need to be able to undergo, to go through this transition. So it looks to me like some kind of universal basic income or some kind of access to a reliable source of either income or a, a way of being able to live when i'm not sure that my job will continue the second thing is access to access to education is is such a cliche Edu- formal education may not be as important as a la carte abilities to learn particular skills. So when I teach at a large college, and let me say, me saying jobs are going to disappear, there's a certain irony in, in that. I'm an old, rich, white, tenured professor. I can't be fired even if I commit a crime. So, of course, my job is going to survive no matter what. That it, it, it is not very It is easy for me to say, well, you don't need to worry about jobs disappearing. I understand that people are going to worry about jobs disappearing. But I also say that we need to make it possible for them to create their own new communities of meaning, including possibilities for work. Now, one of the things that if if I could learn how to program, if I could learn how to write HTML, if I could learn how to write Python code, and I could do that in a way that doesn't require formal schooling, but, you know, that... I have, I have enough access to it that I can do it relatively cheaply and relatively quickly. We may go back to a kind of sharing that was typical 200 years ago, where I make some kind of artisanal product. I make cheese. I make pickles. Right now in Brooklyn, New York, there's quite a few young people who are making really complicated bourbon, garlic maple pickles, and a small jar of them cost $15 US. I can find them online, but I'm not going to travel to them. But if they can have it delivered by Uber, I can actually make a living in a fairly small space. So instead of having a formal job, if we can encourage individual creativity of entrepreneurship, but people have to have the skills to be able to reduce transactions costs. So the the nature of reduction in transactions costs is I have to have some kind of alternative source of income or a way of being able to live. If I lose my formal job, I need Ability to educate myself, not to get formal degrees, which are cumbersome, but in a way that will allow me to acquire the skills that I need to participate in the new economy. And if I do not have to face extensive regulations that were designed for a different era. So there's a number of organizations that have looked, suppose you want to start a new business, how many kind of forms do you need to have? And so in some places it would take 10 days, in some places it might take 20 days for me to do the paperwork that's required to do a new job. And I can't work out of my house, which means that I then have to rent an office separate from my living space. And again, that's really inefficient. That's increasing the, the footprint of each individual in a city. So if we can get rid of restriction of on ways for people to be able to create new ways of serving each other of creating value if we can have educational opportunities that allow them to acquire specific skills in ways that are well taught and that they can get documentation or certification and if we can provide a source of income that at least puts a floor on the level of uncertainty that they have about jobs, I think we can start to detach from the 40-hour-a-week job that until now has been the focus of, that. that's the thing that we, we want to create. We don't actually want the economy to create jobs. We want the economy to create wealth. Wealth is stuff for consumers. So if I can get Really excellent cheese, and the person who makes this cheese is working in an artisanal setting and thinks of himself or herself as an artist. You get a lot of, of a sense of accomplishment for being able to serve other people directly that way. So I've, I actually think that that kind of thinking about economic activity is a lot better than working in a production line. So the, if I'm working in a production line that makes automobiles, that's not nearly as satisfying as being able to make food products or artist products that I'm actually using my creative abilities. I just have to be able to have access to I have to have access to a virtual marketplace or a virtual souk where I can sell those things and solve the three problems of transactions cost.
0: Thank you, Mike. So we're now at the end of our podcast, and we'd like to thank you very much for raising several important issues that policymakers and stakeholders in ECE member states should pay attention to. Just to mention a few of them, we discussed the progress of platform economies and their transformation potential in achieving sustainable development. By reducing transaction costs, they allow us to use what is not being, what is not being used at the moment. Um, we can call this excess capacity, which can be as much as 80 or 90% of products in the economy. They could turn them into services and in this process create an enormous potential for us to preserve the environment and resources to create consumption opportunities, but also opportunities for jobs and entrepreneurships. And most of this potential is in what we call consumer surplus and is not measured in GDP. And that's one of the reasons why this trend is so transformational. At the same time, to put this into practice, there's a range of institutional and infrastructure and regulatory hurdles that will stand in the way. And it will take time, as any kind of technology-driven transformation does. Social policy will also be important to protect and build the right skills. And I think for us, this also means that we should underscore the need for policymakers themselves to be innovative. It's not only the entrepreneurs, it's not only consumers. We also need to rethink how we govern in an environment like this, especially given the uncertainty around exactly what is going to happen. And that's why we at DCE are working on the topic of innovation and competitiveness through podcasts like this, through publication and through policy dialogue and intergovernmental mechanisms to discuss and understand these issues, and also to have mechanisms to harmonize and enable transactions and remove hurdles, such as our work on electronic commerce called CFACT. Thank you very much, Professor Munger. All the best for your future work, and thank you again for your, the hope that you have given us and the guidance that you have given us and our member states on understanding and making the most of the platform economy.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.